Welcome to the second episode of Demol LG South Africa Recaps from Reality TV Warriors. My name is Michael Armstrong, and joining me as always is a Canadian who would never apologize for saying bad things about you on TV, Logan Saunders. Good afternoon, and this is a very special podcast because it's the first podcast from my brand new laptop. It is. We're trying not to date these episodes, but as with the Argentina season, that's not going to happen. It's Logan's first one with his brand new laptop. And in a couple of weeks when we record the um, the Vidim first episode, I'm going to be asking whether Logan's got a new laptop or not. So, spoilers for a couple of months ago, guys. <laughs> I'll warn you now. <laughs> I can have this podcast recording and Facebook Messenger open. And, oh, I have Paint open and I have WordPad open too. <laughs> it's almost like Logan has been brought kicking and screaming into the 20th century. 20th century? <laughs> Not even 21st? I thought you were going to say into 2020. Oh no, that's far too advanced for Canada. You've been dragged kicking and screaming into the late 1990s. It was great like when I uh, was figuring out what laptop to buy, because I realized I can also write it off for tax purposes since this is used for work. So I'm like, well, I use this all the time for teaching, and before, like for teaching, even though it's just a classroom, a video cam, and with PowerPoint, I would still have to restart my old laptop like once every, uh, about halfway through my shift, I would have to restart it just so I didn't have lag anymore. <laughs> and eventually the laptop, I guess my hard drive was fried. Somebody thought they could get it fixed in half an hour, and they spent about five hours on it, and they said, as soon as you get your turn your old laptop on, just put the data onto flash drives or onto an external hard drive. Only use it for that because I don't know how much time it has left on it. <laughs> and I said this to you a couple of weeks ago when I watched the second episode of this season we're actually talking about. I had forgotten how good episode two is. I didn't forget. I knew like episodes two and three were really good. Yeah, I think this is the... I worked out there is one at least one good challenge in each of the... Well, in each of episodes 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, I think. It's a murderous row of episodes coming from right now. Beginning with this one, which has three challenges, three of which are all, I would say, at least A-grade challenges. They're amazing. And I would say 2 and 3, yeah, 2 and 3, I think, pretty much all have perfect challenges, if I'm not mistaken. Well, three's got the stupid inflatable bob challenge, which I'm going to mock mercilessly when we do that episode. I guess I need one heights-related challenge. Yeah, I would agree <laughs> other than that, because that blob challenge is really, really, really stupid, but it is also brilliant in the fact that it gives us a setup of one of the greatest challenges in reality TV history. I would say, too, that you don't have, unlike Argentina, where I think Argentina had a lot more challenges that were just sort of meh. Yeah. Like, uh, for instance, when they had the exchanger position on the two inflatable rafts, how they edited it down to two, what was it? What did we time it to? A minute and 40 seconds? A minute 47, I think it was. <laughs> yeah, a minute 47. And and these Belgian Mole episodes are not short. These are, these are, I think, the longest episodes. They're even longer than Australian Survivor episodes. Yeah, th this one was an hour and 14, minus that. Or without the ads in there. Yeah. An hour and 14, and I think Australian Survivor, its longest clocks in at about 70 minutes on average. So not that much of a difference, but that's still an extra four minutes. Yeah, it's, it's like I said last week. This season, unlike Argentina, which was a lot about the people and then the challenges as a side thing, this season is much more about the challenges and then the people is a side thing. You don't get any huge characters in the same way that you get Kathy and Jill and Hannah and um, and Mark and his sleeping bag and pretty much everyone in that cast. You don't get any big characters like them, but you get big characters in a different way, like Bertrand, the fucking idiot. I think you probably get the record for the longest cut for individual challenges this season. I think the Lion Cage challenge goes on for quite a while this episode. Yeah, I obviously don't have the, the timings to hand, but the Lion Cage challenge is probably half an hour at least, and it's a really good challenge. I was going to say two, at least half an hour. Because hmm. Shoshaloza, even though it is the iconic challenge of the episode, and our first A-plus challenge of the season, of which there are quite a few in this season, Shoshaloza doesn't go on as long as you think it does. Shoshaloza is probably 
total about 10 minutes, if that. Yeah, if you include all the footage of them warming up and the, the decisions by the jury, I think it's ten minutes, around 10 minutes too. Yeah, even though it's a brilliant challenge, it goes on for far less time than you think it does watching the episode, as opposed to the Lion Cage challenge, which goes on far longer than you remember it going on for, but it doesn't feel padded. I think the thing with the Lion Cage challenge too is it's a very, it's a challenge you can't really do anywhere else. No. How often can producers have a challenge involving lions, goats, monkeys <laughs> that they that they get to interact that the contestants get to interact with? In the same way, well, actually that goes for a lot of challenges this season. A lot of these challenges you could never do anywhere else. I'm particularly thinking of the ostrich maze. Don't they have the alligator cage too this season? Alligator cage is as a result of um, the ostrich maze, actually. That's episode four. Um, But yeah, you have that one. You have the diving for the South African flag challenge in episode six. A lot of these really big, iconic challenges you could never do anywhere else in South Africa. And in the same way that we talk a lot about how the location itself is another character in the best seasons of a lot of the shows we cover, but especially Mole, South Africa is a massive participant in this season, and that's kind of what makes it such a good season. I agree. And then, of course, yeah, as I said, the scenery is just absolutely stunning this episode. You can't get a bad shot when you have Table Mountain in the background. And the best thing for us is the fact that this is the first episode where we pretty much go, yep, know exactly where that is, for a lot of these challenges. I think the flows of the first locations, the aquarium, like that's where the sightseeing bus frequently picks up people. <laughs> that's not that's where you go to. That's the that's the waterfront where all the tourists go. <laughs> Let's get to that in a minute. Previously, eleven strangers were driven to a hangar in the middle of the night and given a temptation test. If no one pushed a button in their cars, everyone could board the plane in front of them. However, six people did, which meant that Hans was left behind. In South Africa, the remaining ten ran to commemorate Nelson Mandela before splitting into daredevils and scaredy cats and falling backwards off a building. At the first execution, a terrified Jessica was the first to get sent home, before Jill greased Hans, who was waiting outside. And we begin with a recap of last week's episode, but this time through the eyes of Hans. When he left the hangar, Jill came on Hans' screen and said he'd have a second chance, and to just wait it out. And we begin the episode proper on day four in Cape Town, and Jill reintroduces us to everyone. Now, the reason I rushed through all of that is because I've got a couple of questions to ask you in a minute. I was going to say, it would be even better recap if it's like Hans coming in and then Jessica just sulking on her way out. <laughs> just a complete dichotomy there of a guy very eager to get back in the game. And then on the flip side, the most crushed contestant I think I've ever seen eliminated on our reality show. It would have been even funnier if Hans pulled up in the car, he got out, opened the door for Jessica, she left, and then he just walks in. <laughs> This is for you. <laughs> he slammed the door and just went, mm, bye, bitch, and then just walks in. He taps He taps the top of the car like a taxi. Yeah. <laughs> She's got to go. No red button to save you. Now, this may surprise people, given how much I've already talked about how much I love this episode. Do you think that the hands twist is a good one? And also, do you think that the hands twist is a fair one? Yeah, those are two very different two very different questions. Well, I'll start with the one that's easy to answer to answer first. Is it a fair twist? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> it's not a fair twist. He gets to bypass an elimination. Not just that. The entire challenge that is revolving around Hans coming back is so unbelievably rigged for him to win. Oh, all those mini games were borderline impossible, <laughs> I would say. And we'll get into this with the minigame challenges in a minute. But I would say as soon as anyone picks Yokers, Hans is safe. He is hands down getting back into the game. Yeah, because Jessica 100% got zero on that test. And I understand why producers did this challenge and did this twist to begin with, because it is a wonderful twist on the surface of it. But I think that it is incredibly short-sighted if as in a lot of the early games, someone just immediately goes out with zero. Because I don't think people really start scoring points, unless they're lucky or Kathy, until maybe weeks three or four. A substantial number of points. Yeah, it was super easy for him to get back into it, purely because 
no one's going to score highly on that first first test, and he could potentially win nine yokers just from that first challenge. And he got all nine. It's like d- d- he could just rip up the quiz right there, and he'd be in. I would, in fact, put money on the fact that if Hans had got nine yokers, he probably would have scored the highest on that test. Yes, but the disadvantage for Hans, I guess, overall for the whole season is he's not there to observe not only this challenge, but the challenges in the first episode. Yeah. So he misses out on a lot of potential observations, or maybe it's an advantage because you have less people around you that you can focus on specific people. He doesn't have to worry about focusing on Jessica. No, it's not necessarily a disadvantage for him coming in in week two, because it's an absolute crapshoot on the first test. Yeah. So, I have one more question as well. How many of the locations in Cape Town did you recognise in this one? A few of the shots. I can't tell you the exact, like, landmark of it i don't think they went to robin island but the waterfront the waterfront is very iconic in cape town especially that aquarium i was at i walked by that aquarium at least three or four times (laughs) i can tell you exactly where all of these locations are apart from the diamond place because i've been to every one of those locations (laughs) all right you went to the castle too yeah and the penitentiary or or the colonial building yeah, because as you well know, when I'm in um, when I'm in a, a new city, I do tend to do the hop on hop off buses. And as you pointed out, the hop on hop off buses do indeed start just outside the aquarium. And the aquarium was maybe three, four minutes walk from where I was staying. <laughs> did I tell you I got screwed over by the hop on hop off bus in Cape Town? No, I was going to ask whether you did it. So that's how actually I got robbed. Um... That led to, so this is a follow-up to the previous week, where I signed up for the hop-on, hop-off bus thing. I bought it, like, the day before, and then they said, oh, you got to board it this time, because it was, they take you up to uh, Signal Hill. You have dinner, they have, like, a sunset dinner on Signal Hill. So I get on the hop-on, hop-off bus, and then after a couple stops, they're like, oh, this is the end of the line. I'm like, isn't this the one for Signal Hill? And they're like, oh, no. Because it's lower season, because I had my ticket out and everything, they said, oh no, this actually starts like half an hour earlier when it's the lower season. And it said it, no, it didn't say it anywhere on my ticket. Like it was in a really obscure part of the website. I'm like, well, how was I supposed to know that? So then I was just dropped off um, not too far away from where I was staying, but I had to walk through several blocks. And that's, of course, when those two kids attempted to rob me. <laughs> So that was my hop-on, hop-off experience of Cape Town. I have just checked um, while she was talking. My accommodation was 450 metres from the aquarium. (laughs) Oh, you're right at the waterfront then. Yeah. (laughs) Because I kind of vaguely remembered this challenge, as soon as I saw the aquarium, I'm like, holy shit, I know exactly where that is. And then where were the other... One was the castle, you said. Castle of Good Hope is... Somewhere where I went as well, yep. Uh, the Diamond Place, I don't know exactly where that is, but I have a rough idea. And then St. George's Cathedral was the other one, which is not at all far from uh, the Castle of Good Hope. We went there on the same day. So yeah, I know exactly where that is. <laughs> so Gilles meets them at the Greenpoint Lighthouse, which I've also been to for their first challenge of the episode. And they will board the hop-on-hop-off bus behind him, which will stop in four places where they've got a chance to earn up to 6,000 euros for the pot. And as with every hop-on-hop-off bus going in the world, uh, they do play local music before the guide starts talking, and they pick a very interesting song called Shoshaloza before Gilles, as their guide, starts speaking. I've never heard of Shoshaloza before, but it sounds like an interesting song. Yeah. And he says that their ride will end at Signal Hill. At each stop, they will find a challenge worth 1,500 euros, and they can also choose a yoker for each person who does that challenge. The prize will only be banked if they board the next bus, which arrives 20 minutes later. If they choose the yokers and lose them, then Hans will receive them. And the first stop is, as we mentioned, the Two Oceans Aquarium, which is on the V&A waterfront, like five minutes from where I stayed. And they choose Sam and Booba, who choose the yokers. And they have to count how many fish there are in the tank behind them, and have three chances. And for fun, because this is like an amazing race task, they have to give their answers to someone in a fish mascot costume. And it's an impossible... There's no way you're going to accurately count all the fish in that tank. I know. It's brilliant. You're going to need... They went... The answer was 50. 
and their guesses were as high as 77. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why even bother? Just, just give, just leave, just get back on the bus and hand those past dragons off to Hans. <laughs> Have you ever um, had to try and count animals within a rough time limit of 15 minutes? Because they have. Well, there's one. There's a. I have. I do have practice with this. If you play Mario Party for the N64, they had this mini game called Roll Call, and, you, and the thing is, you only had to count up to like twenty shy guys or twenty boos or toads, and that was it. And you had like a full minute to count, and it's in a very small area, and they don't really move all that much. So I can't imagine what it would be like to count 50 live fish in a gigantic tank where all the fish can swim around. I think the word is impossible. <laughs> Pretty close. I think it would take it would take a fluke, a luck, just a really lucky guess to be like, yep, you got it. Sorry, Hans, you're executed. So yeah, shockingly, they don't count 50 fish. They count like 70 odd, and Hans earns the yokers. And then Jill greets Hans on the next bus. He says, in the mole, you can't be eliminated unless you see a red screen. So he has another chance. He will take the same quiz that they took in the previous episode. And if he beats Jessica's score, probably of zero, he will stay in South Africa. And because Wi-Fi sucks, he has to do it on pen and paper. (laughs) And to make life easy for him, Gilles actually gives him the questions. And the bios. He gets short bios on everybody. It's like, it's an open book mole test. Well, yeah, the, the bios are in the mole book, as we found out last week. But other than that, he actually gets the list of questions to try and work out what his answers are going to be. And knowing as we do that Jess went home on time, all he literally has to do is take that test faster than her. And that's something I've just realized. <laughs> well, he's on top of the bus, so maybe one of the papers like flew away and he has to run back to grab the paper. That's where he would lose time. He gets the questions beforehand, and then he takes the test at Signal Hill. He takes it on the computer after getting the yokers. Oh, he didn't take it till all the way then. No, he gets the questions in paper form on the bus. Presumably, if anyone actually completes their mini-challenge, you can then ask them the questions to try and work out what everyone's answers are going to be. But all he literally needs to do, assuming that Jess got zero, is beat her time to win. Which is very doable if you have all of the questions. And that's only if... Sam and Booba count 50 fish. Uh, Davy, Elaine, and Marzena are able to figure out the mystery. And uh, Robin and Jolene, Jolene can correctly rank diamonds from most expensive to least expensive in a group of five. They have to get all five in order. Hmm. And then Bertrand having to complete a task. I, I I know I said this too early, but I can't wait to talk about that bell ringing task. It's one of my faves. It is it, it is the most lopsided challenge in the history of Belgian mole. Producers had a very very desired outcome for this. Yeah. So the second challenge is for three people at the Castle of Good Hope, and they choose Davy, Eline, and Marsena. Have you been to the Castle of Good Hope? Nope. I have been to the Castle of Good Hope. I have also been in that room of the Castle of Good Hope because it's on the tour. Um, and interestingly, it is a normal stop on the city sightseeing uh, bus route, but was actually closed when I was there in September. Oh. And they choose the money, and they have to find John Pearson's ship name by looking at the carvings on the doors in that room to earn their money. And given that there are like seven or eight doors, it's probably the one... I'd say there's two doable mini-challenges in this. It's one of the doable mini-challenges, I would say. Well, they do. They do finish it. But they miss the bus by about five, ten seconds? 22 seconds to go when they correctly guess it's Swallow of London. But the interesting thing is, the challenge here is getting out of the Castle of Good Hope because it is very difficult to get out of there at speed. And I mean really difficult. So to do it like five to ten seconds late is actually quite impressive because it is not easy to find your way out of the Castle of Good Hope. For if, yeah, unless you have, unless well, if Hans were to do it, he would have been provided a, a whole schematic and a map to do beforehand. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and it's actually Aline who spots uh, Swallow of London, but her and Davy get into an argument about who actually said Swallow of London. And I don't know why this is an actual argument because we see on TV that it was Aline. Maybe one of them just wanted to draw a suspicion and be Maybe. like, "No, I solved it. I did it." <laughs> also, 
interestingly, I've just um, I've just looked at my pictures from uh, from Cape Town. Like six photos before um, the Castle Could Hope ones was the Greenpoint Lighthouse ones. This was your episode. Yeah, and like ten after that is the Museum of National History, which we'll see next week. <laughs> so the third stop is at St George's Cathedral, and they choose Bertrand and Annalise, who receive a CD with nine tracks which have blanked words. Those blanked words are the names of bells. The one that is not bleeped will be the one that earns money. They get one chance to work out what word is not missing from any song, and they play this so badly. Like, I know I said this to you earlier, but oh my god, Bertrand doing this challenge is beyond frustrating. He does not, does he know any pop lyrics? Reach out for good hope, he says at one point, as a lyric of an actual pop music song. Reach out for the cape of good hope. The thing is, if you are presented with ten words, all of them, apart from one, are a single word, and the other one is good hope off of the Cape of Good Hope, maybe that's going to be the correct answer. I know you're in a kind of frantic mess from running around and thinking, I've only got 20 minutes to complete this. But even before you listen to songs, no song that I can think of in popular music is going to have the words Good Hope in it. We will, we will, Good Hope, Good Hope. (laughs) Logically, you look at Good Hope and go, that's probably going to be the one I need to ring. And if you're desperate at the end, with three minutes to go, as they are, and you ring a bell, you ring the Good Hope bell. South Good Hope, born and raised, where I used to spend most of my days. The best thing about this challenge for me is the fact that, because they're so well bleeped, it sounds like they're swearing in a church. Which is hilarious every time, because I'm a six-year-old child. And Annalise is the religion teacher. Exactly, you have a religion teacher, and someone who's arguably religious in Bertrand. In the Anglican Cathedral of South Africa, which is St. George's Cathedral, in a side room, listening to potentially sweary songs. It's just comedy gold. Well, you could just start a sentence with Bertrand and it be comedy gold. Well, yeah, because as I did say to you ages ago, Bertrand is going to get it quite bad for me for the next few episodes because everything he touches turns to shit and it is brilliant. The antithesis to Midas. Exactly. He's basically the James Miller of the mole, because everything he says and everything he does is completely wrong. Did you catch his introduction by Jules at the beginning? I didn't write it down. Because he introduces everybody and does like a short description of them. Like he says, like, Aline has a big mouth, but is very sneaky or something like that. And then with Bertrand, he says, Bertrand never forgets he is playing a game. He's the gamer of the bunch. He's the one that's really calculating and with it. He's playing hardcore. I would be genuinely interested to find out whether Bertrand was actually playing a game during this season, or whether he really is that dumb. I I think things just did not pan out. Sometimes when you go on reality shows or these competitions, sometimes you're just not in the best headspace and everything is working against you. There's a lot of pressure, too. Yeah, he's a brilliant character, don't get me wrong, but he is so wrong at every opportunity that it's glorious television every time he's on the screen. It's not like Argentina where we can say like the first four episodes really belong to Kathy, but every time Bertrand is on the screen, I am watching Bertrand to see how he's going to mess something up in this rewatch. It's brilliant. And we're not even into the Lion Cage challenge yet, we're... He has a lot of interesting moments there. There's a brilliant bit of unintentional comedy in episode 3 as well that I really want to see whether you pick up on like I do, because it it feeds into episode 4, which is brilliant. And then there's also one thing in retrospect for Bertrand that you don't get to fully appreciate on your initial watch, but on a rewatch, is about 10 times funnier now. Yeah, but we will get to that in a bit. So the last challenge is at a diamond cutter in Cape Town for Yolene and Robin. They have to rank five diamonds from cheapest to most expensive. The cheapest is worth about 1,500 euros, and the most expensive is worth about 80 grand. And the best bit about this is they have to do it with, like, two minutes of tuition. Because they have to get back to the, the next bus in 20 minutes. There's so much... Like, it's five times four times three times two times one for the number of combinations. It's, it's, five, it's five factorial. 
Yeah, it's 120. They've got a 1 in 120 chance of getting it correct by just guessing. Yeah, because you're not going to be like... I mean, I don't know much about Robin and Yolene, but I don't think they can just look at diamonds and be like, oh, this is definitely worth 80,000. Oh, this is definitely worth 1,500. I don't think you can really tell. It's even better when you consider that they deliberately set up this challenge so it tricks people. Whenever you see a rank these in terms of cheapest to most expensive, you can guarantee there will be a trick in at least one of them. I think they should have just picked five random ones on the spot to show how pointless of a challenge it was. It's like, why waste your time and energy and focus? Just be like, eh, this is as good a guess as any. It does say all that the diamond one was the only one of these four that I couldn't remember because it is slightly forgettable. Well, because you know they're going to lose. It just goes back to what we were saying earlier, that this challenge is just so rigged for hands to come back. And I don't have a problem with that. I think it's hilarious that it was rigged for hands to come back, but it's just everything is against the contestants for this one. Far more than a lot of other challenges of this season. Like, for the Diamond Challenge, I think you'd have to cut it down to three. Maybe rank three at the absolute most to give themselves a fighting chance. I mean, it's a miracle to say that they got three of five. Yeah, that part shocks me, but I think that's just luck. Especially when you consider they only had one chance on this one as well. Like, they should have given them unlimited chances to to guess in the 20 minutes for me. Yeah, just don't confirm which ones are right or wrong. Just be like, you have to... I think they will... Actually, with Blogging Amazing Race Australia 2 right now, I think in Dubai they have a similar challenge for that Paul and Steve do. It's gold, isn't it? Yeah, where you have to rank those, and they eventually they get it. I think it needs to be some, and they were it was unlimited guesses. I think, I think you, you got, I think you got to do it that way. All they have to do is do the similar scoring system to the end game of um, of old British game show Wipeout, and tell you how many you've got correct, but not which ones. Yes, and maybe there that in that situation you give them like four or five guesses, but you can't say there are five diamonds. You only get one guess to rank most expensive to least expensive. Unless somebody in your group is a jeweler, you're not going to get it. Obviously, this challenge was utter bullshit, but it's glorious bullshit. I don't actually have a problem with this challenge, despite how rigged it is, and despite how much I'm moaning about it. It's hilarious that this is the first challenge of an episode, which is arguably probably the most important episode of the season, because it sets up a lot of things for the rest of the season but it's just so gloriously rigged. I think 99% of the time this would be considered the dumbest or the worst challenge in mole history, but really, they only had themselves to blame. Be like, well, we kind of just, they, they fell for the trap. On any other season, this would be considered a terrible challenge because of how blatantly rigged it is for them to not earn much. But on this season, it works. And that's something I'm probably going to say a few times during this season is the fact that this season is so brilliant overall and so brilliantly south african and it uses the location so wonderfully and uses the people so wonderfully that it just works and any other version of this show and any other season of this show probably wouldn't work as well and then hans gets back in the game who would have thought but first we have the wonderfully awkward moment of jill greeting him at signal hill with a nice spread and no company and revealing the password and twist to him. And then everyone coming in and greeting Hans for the first time, and apologising for what they've said about him on TV already. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to say fuck you, Hans. <laughs> we love you, Hans. But seriously, if you get back in the game, fuck you. <laughs> Even the normally lovely Sam apologises, but already saying bad things about him on TV. I'm sorry about what I said about you and your mother. And Marsena, who, even last week, because of how she treated Hans before... Lies and says um, she's super happy he's there, enforcing her reputation from last week as being a bit of a bitch. It's like, don't worry, Hans, that's all in the past, but seriously, that screen better be goddamn hot for Dama Red. And something that you probably do forget until you rewatch this episode is the fact that Sam and Booba obviously pick Pasfraga, because you probably would if you were like 19 and 24, I think Sam is. But also, so do Annalise and Bertrand. I think because there was so much uncertainty after the first quiz, I don't think anybody was on the mole's trail yet. No, but the, the glorious thing is, you don't expect it from Annalise to take the calculated option and the gamble here. 
because they know the twist. They know that Hans will get those past Fragen if they don't. Bertrand, you do expect it from, because he's a dope. Annalise, you don't. And it's a rare bit of a calculating move from Annalise. Every religious teacher I know loves to gamble. It's just a very interesting move from her, because you really don't expect it, from her archetype at least. Shows you how competitive she is, and, well, why she does as well as she does this season. Yeah. So, Hans ends up with full pass dragon, which is essentially enough to make him qualify even before he's taken the test. And while he does take the test, the rest of the group argue over the stupid situation that they've put themselves in. They're all to blame. That's the thing, as rigged as this first challenge is, they could have stopped him getting Passfragen if they'd all just gone for money. And we would have had Booba last another episode, possibly. Uh, yeah, potentially. We don't know who, who went home first out of him and Yolene, really, do we? But Do we find out in the finale who had the worst score? No, I don't think so. They're still listed on uh, on Wiki as both um, being the second and third losers. Mm-hmm. So, Hans does, of course, get himself a green screen and ensures his survival in the group. Let's see, with nine pass frag and Hans, do you get in? Green screen! Wow! You got nine out of twenty questions right and possibly a few more. <laughs> he only gets four. Don't exaggerate. <laughs> Be funny if, uh, uh, if he went straight ticket on somebody and had a perfect score. <laughs> Or if he's or if he's like, man, I must be on the right track then if I got a green screen. See, I don't think him having that many pass progen is a big advantage for him because he still knows nothing about who the mole is. That's the problem. Like I've said this in previous seasons. If you have loads of yokers or pass progen or whatever you call it in your version, it's not as big an advantage for you because you don't get the knowledge of knowing you weren't necessarily wrong. I just wish Hans would have just ran away with it if he went straight ticket on somebody, got a green screen, and just be so presumptuous about who the mole must be. I would also love it if Jessica was still on the quiz. Just <laughs> just on the off chance that she was going to get an episode 3 return. Yeah, they're all at Signal Hill having dinner, and you just see Jessica pose in the background the same way Hans did. I would just love that recurring twist of one person goes home each episode... And comes back, and then two people go home each episode as a result of that one person coming back. And then next round it's like, okay guys, for this Lion Cage challenge, you're actually going to have only 20 minutes to do this. Um, if you choose to do it for the Pass Fragon, I mean, if you lose this, it goes to Hans, but 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 you get Pass Fragon if you do this. Oh yeah, sure, let's do the Pass Fragon. And then Sam blows up again at dinner. How did we do this for the fourth week in a row, guys? Why do we have a fourth double boot? Or even better, if um, <laughs> if every single pass fragment that's given out this season, if it isn't one, it goes to Hans. <laughs> yeah, just, to... just rig it for him properly. Every exemption, too. If you don't get the exemption, it just goes to Hans. Oh, fuck Hans. Sorry, Hans. Hans, I apologize for what is going to be aired on TV. But seriously, screw you, man. Screw you, Hans. And the other interesting thing that I have just spotted is the fact that we have no recollection of day five in this episode. They do not indicate anything happened on day five. They're in Hootbai? Is that just past Cousins Bay? That was on day six. Oh. They all wake up on day six in uh, in Oat Bay, but there's nothing from uh, from day five, which is really interesting. Is that just past, is that just past Cousins Bay? Uh, I think so. It looks like it. It looks like Cousins Bay in the background to me. Cousins Bay is nice. I liked Cousins Bay. A lot of that area is very nice. It's just past uh, Camps Bay. Or Camps Bay. We'll get to Camps Bay next week. So they all wake up in Oot Bay on day six, where Gilles greets them at breakfast looking for the three most in-tune people. And they choose Aline, Annalise, and Sam for the iconic challenge that is coming. And the other seven get to go and have a wilder challenge. (laughs) And I will say that this pair of challenges is one of my favourites in mole history. Because Annalise, Eileen, and Sam head to a church and have to sing with a gospel choir with only three hours to prepare and learn South Africa's unofficial national anthem, Show Shaloza. I thought it was Waka Waka. Waka Waka, hey, hey. Doesn't Waka Waka play later in the episode? Am I having a fever dream? I think it does. Or does it play on the bus? It's definitely in this episode somewhere. It's remixed in. It's remixed with Show Shaloza Waka. Because for my money, that is one of the worst World Cup songs ever. And then Shakira gets to do another World Cup song at the very next World Cup. 
Yeah, Waka Waka This Time for Africa is a genuinely terrible song. But still very popular. Inexplicably, yes. Uh, and there is a brilliant cut between Eileen trying to sing and the other seven singing Bohemian Rhapsody in the car. <laughs> and they are introduced to the rest of the choir. And Sam is, of course, the favourite of the South African ladies when the director tells them that he's single. And for their challenge, they must blend in with the choir. Each of them will be worth an amount between 500 and 1,500 euros. Two blindfolded experts will walk past the choir and must identify who the imposters are. If neither of them spots a Belgian, their value is added to the pot. If one of them spots a Belgian, they are worth nothing. And if both of them spot a Belgian, their value is taken from the pot. And the other seven head to an animal facility on the outskirts of Table Mountain National Park. Marsena asks who's scared of spiders and snakes, and Boober, Bertrand, and Davy all say they are. And reinforcing her reputation as being a bit of a bitch, she calls them pussies. <laughs> oh no, we don't like pussies either. <laughs> We're afraid of pussies too. Imagine if, they, imagine if they said that in the episode. Well, from what I've heard from you, Davy doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and not do too many Davy jokes, honest. And the, the best thing about this is this is probably the first season where the editors really have a lot of fun with these people because they cut immediately from her saying that they're pussies to her being blindfolded and being scared by the existence of goats. And they are all separated around the facility and have 90 minutes to push a red button, earning them 3,000 euros for the pots. However, the red button is inside a lion enclosure with a lion. So one of them just gets into the lion cage to press the red button with a live lion. I don't see the harm in that. This is how an extra boot happens. (laughs) They draw straws for who gets sacrificed. It's a literal execution. And then next week, when they're brought back, it's just their mangled body being dragged across the ground as they pose in the background of the photo, just like Hans did the week before. Any past frogging you don't pick goes to the mangled corpse of Marsena. And helps pay to fly her body back to her family in Antwerp. Helps pay for the repatriation. (laughs) So Robin is in a cage with a chain on his leg in a padlock. Boober is in an enclosure with a remote-controlled crane. Bertrand and Marsena are in a goat pen, and Yolene, Davy, and Hans are outside the enclosures. And Marsena and Bertrand have to milk the goats to be able to pour enough milk into a tube to release a key. Yolene, Davy, and Hans have a word search and have to cross out 106 animals to leave only five squares. And to get to the button, they have to put the lion into a cage, but currently there is a baby goat in there. And in a brilliant bit of Zeal voiceover, in order to avoid a bloodbath, it must be freed. And Booba is chained in his cage, but has the milking instructions and a mouse in the cage on a boat. He has controls for the boat and a dump truck, but not the crane, which is in a supply cage locked behind the padlock, which the trio have to unlock. I like how they treat Booba like a nine-year-old instead of a 19-year-old by giving him a remote control car and dump truck to use. It's like, we know Booba's the youngest, but did you have to do it like that? <laughs> I mean, strategically, with three people being outside any restrictions and all that sort of stuff, you put two people on the word search, and one person looking at the lock, because it's a letter lock, to try and work out if you know it's an animal, there's only going to be so many five-letter animals you can think of, and you just have to turn the dials and look at what letters you've got. Because the fact of the matter is, the answer to their word search is lion. Or the Flemish word for lion, which is Leo. So, you can pretty much guess it's going to be an animal, number one, because you're trying to cross animals off the word search. But more importantly, it's probably going to be an animal that is in South Africa, and an animal you can see. That doesn't leave many. They should have had one, yeah, one person work on that lock right from the very start. Yeah, lion is the obvious animal answer there i would say it's well it's one of the big five well yeah and there's literally a lion guarding the button it's not a subtle challenge this one i think i know hans wouldn't have done the lock because i think hans's big issue right now is he has to do his best to draw suspicion out of any of the players right now yeah because a lot of people really don't think he could be the ball so he's got to do his best to sabotage this one Yeah, I I would say so, but putting him on the lock is probably the best thing to do in that case, because then he can accidentally not put lion in properly or something. Yeah. Lion's a four-letter word. Well, it is in English, but in... uh, (laughs) Leo? 
in Flemish, it's Liel. Yeah. Liel. Uh, so, in the larger cage containing Robin's cage, there is a cheetah tail sticking out and some raw meat. And this is one of the best tricks that they have ever played on, on a contestant. It's so funny. It's just a crew member who... Crew member wearing a cheetah tail. It's literally a big ass cage and a crew member hiding behind a wooden wall with a, a litter picker and a cheetah tail, just moving it back and forth a little bit. I wonder who drew the short straw to be that role. Like, okay, loser has to dress up as a cheetah. The fact of the matter is, even on Belgian Mole, they're not going to put one of their contestants in a cage with a live cheetah. Because whilst cheetahs aren't as dangerous as lions, they are carnivals. <laughs> they are very fast. They do take down their prey. They are majestic as hell, having seen them on safari. But you don't cross a cheetah. The fact that anyone thought, even in that position, that Robin was going to be in a cage with a cheetah is hilarious. Be better if Robin just assumed it wouldn't be a cheetah, and he steps out, and then it turns out to be a live cheetah that jumps out. It's like, what the hell is this? I thought it was a crew member. Of all the big cats, the cheetahs are the most like house cats, but you still don't cross a cheetah, because they are faster than you, and they are quite predatory when they want to be. The Logan Saunders story. And the best thing about this is, because it's Robin in that cage, and he can see what Hans is doing or not doing, he starts harassing Hans. I think that was just that turned into a sport for this episode. Yeah, the, the trick with the word search is the word search is huge. There are 106 animals they have to cross off. It is a trap to do that word search, and they do end up doing it eventually. But it's a trap and a time sink to do that word search. You have to just think logically about this. And then we get Bertrand's look continuing when he gets shot on by a goat. He was in some very suggestive positions with that goat. Yeah, he really was. I know that they didn't get much instruction until Booba could actually get the milking instructions to them, but he was restraining that goat far more than he maybe should have. It's funny because goat usually stands for greatest of all time, but in Bertrand's case, being called the goat is just being a goat. But the best thing about him being shot on by a goat is that Marsena says it's like diarrhea. And my response is, that's what you get for wearing your diarrhea-coloured converse. Yeah, it gets thrown out. Which is a callback to last week. Um, so with about 40 minutes left, Booba and Davy begin to suspect that there is no animal in the cage with Robin. Robin leaves his cage to try and use the key on his ankle on the bigger cage, not realising that the lock is already unlocked, just closed to make it look like it's locked. And his key is actually for the lion cage. And then you can understand why Robin's going to be a bit grumpy, because this episode he gets screwed over with the Hans twist, and then no one bothered to even check his cage, or the, th or the fence before the cage. He's like, did no one think to try and open this? Yeah, when I, when I originally watched this season, I always remembered Robin as being a bit of a sourpuss, I'll be honest. Rewatching the first three episodes of this season, as I've seen so far, I appreciate Robin a lot more than I used to. Robin is understandably really pissed at Hans. And then they eventually get the lion, the Leo code, and then we get to see the wonderful scene of Bertrand trying to barter with a monkey and failing at outwitting a monkey. Yep. So with 35 minutes to go, the trio do solve their word puzzle, which is lion, obviously. Inside the cage is a remote for Booba's crane, some apples for Marsena and Bertrand to tempt their monkeys with, and a cool box full of meat to use on the lion. And the key for the cool box is with the monkeys. At which point, Bertrand actually genuinely asks Davy whether he has a handbook in there for communicating with monkeys. <laughs> and inside the unlock cage is also a mirror and a pole so that Robin can see that his cheetah, in inverted commas, is actually a crew member with the litter picker just waving the tail back and forth. And when he spots that, he realises his gate is unlocked and he's not best pleased. No one checked my effing cage, Hans. Who the fuck checked this cage? John! <laughs> you lion motherfucker! You lion hot for Dama! <laughs> With eight minutes left, only two keys remain for the team to find, and both of them are inside Bertrand and Mercena's enclosure. Bertrand does try and communicate with the monkey. It doesn't go well. Uh, do they speak English or Flemish? That's the thing, he's got an advantage in the fact that they probably speak Afrikaans, which, as we find out in a few episodes' time, is not that dissimilar from um, from Flemish, really. 
But he just keeps getting busted time and time again by the monkey trying to steal the pot. And then he realizes that the key he's looking for has actually fallen out of the pot he's trying to grab. Yeah, they're like, you lost the key, Bertrand. And then and then it's Robin who saves this challenge, not only by figuring out that his cage was unlocked and just figuring out that it was a crew member with a fake tail, but I think he's also the one that suggests to use some sort of hook to get the milk key out. Yeah, with five minutes left, Yolene found fish hooks in the unlocked cage that the trio got, and uh, Robin correctly suggests that they can just use it to um, to hook the key out, because... Yet again, milking the goats is a trap and is a time sink. There is so much of this challenge that you can cut out just by thinking logically. And they've got two minutes to get the goat out of the little cage and the lion into it so they can push the button. And Robin pushes the button with 36 seconds left and they earn 3,000 euros for the challenge. Robin saved them. Yes, he did. So, And the fact that it was that close to... Just 36 seconds, otherwise they fail yet another challenge this episode. Yeah. And now, the main event. Because they are then taken to the church to watch the choir. Sam is worth 1,500 euros, Annalise is worth 1,000, and Eileen 500. And my first note for this challenge is just, God, I love this challenge. It's just so joyous and South African. You genuinely could not do the Shoshalosa challenge anywhere else. And it's just so delightful. And they do an adaptation of this in Greece. They do a similar challenge to this. Yeah, they do the Greek dancing challenge um, in Greece. Um, But you genuinely could not do this challenge anywhere else in the world. And it's delightful to watch. And it is also delightfully brutal. Because the best case scenario for the choir is that all the Belgians get found out. The worst case scenario for the choir is that they get tagged themselves and realize that they're shit. I wrote that in my notes too. I'm thinking, I wonder how many members of the choir get insulted when they get picked by the expert uh, blindfolded jury. They're like, damn, I guess I like after producers and the contestants go home, the choir leader says, okay, anybody who has a red sticker can get the hell out out of the choir right now. We're going to find replacements for you. Yeah, given that four people get tagged by the judges, that is really, really mean. <laughs> you know what the ultimate humiliation would have been, though, for one of them, is if they got two stickers, if they got both stickers. Yeah. If they got stickered twice, it's like, okay, if a contestant gets stickered twice, that money gets taken out of the pot. If one choir member gets stickered twice, they are out of a job, and they will never sing again. It's just... It's so hilariously brutal, this challenge. And it doesn't take up much time of the episode in in reality, as we said earlier. It's probably only 10 minutes total. Well, how long can they sing Socialosa for? That's the thing. It's a short challenge. It's a really clever challenge. But also, it's really, really culturally cool. We talked in the Vietnam season about how cool the staying over at the uh, Vietnamese temple and learning Vovanam thing was. This is another one of those challenges that is a life-affirming experience for the three people involved in it, I would say. And the seven people who are in the audience, and of course, Papa Bear, Gilles de Costa. It's such a cool experience for them to even get the chance to be in, in that South African church and see the South African choir singing Shoshaloza, never mind the three people being a part of it. And just how much the, the suspense, there's a lot of suspense that's very easy to edit on screen because it's just a blindfolded jury member who slowly goes by each person and stops. And then whenever they're stopped on the contestant, you're like, please move forward. Please move forward. Don't sticker me. No, Annalise, no. It's the first challenge where I can hands down say that you can really tell that this production team are on fire now, where they just get this show so brilliantly. And I know we said this to Joe when we talked to him in, at the end of Mexico, but South Africa is the first real example of, oh, wow, they are doing this show and they are doing it so well. And then, I don't, I don't know if you can hear it, Michael, but when Annalise and Elaine both get stickered, the contestants, when they're sitting in the pews there, each time they say, damn it, Hans. In the same way that Kathy was just the excuse in Argentina, it's just become Hans as the excuse in South Africa. Yeah. Oh, damn it, Hans. Why Why did you tell them? 
You can just hear Hamza at the back coughing whenever yeah. whenever he gets to one of the Belgians. <laughs> like Tequan Wittick. Yeah, like just being the Tequan Wittick of uh, of South Africa. <laughs> I'm the one person outside of England who will guess who will know that reference. Weirdly, they did announce a couple of days ago that um, the next series of Millionaire is going to have another million pound winner. Oh, is it Tequan Wittick? Uh, no, he he was on it and won a thousand pound. I think not long before uh, Major Charles Ingram did. What they should do is invite Major Charles Ingram back and see how well he would do just on his own. Oh, he's still super bitter. It's brilliant. There was a documentary about it uh, at Easter about the um, the the coughing scandal, and he is still very bitter even twenty years later. He thinks he should get the million pounds. Yeah, he said he did nothing wrong. He still professes his innocence. Really? Yeah, even though literally anyone who saw the episode, me included, thinks that he cheated. Not thinks. There, I think there is proof beyond reasonable doubt after about the 70th well-timed cough that he cheated. Especially the Craig David question. I think, I think as soon as the Craig David question happens, there's no denying that he cheated. I love how much you know about this. Um... <laughs> Yeah, there was a documentary on over Easter called Quiz, um, which was really interesting, and it's adapted from a stage show where they the first half of it is basically this is how he did it, and the second half of it is well maybe he didn't. When people watch the stage show, apparently they poll them at the halfway point, and everyone thinks that he's guilty, and then afterwards everyone thinks that he's not. And I watched all three episodes because it's done in the exact same format, and I went, "No, he's still guilty. He a hundred percent is guilty." Because there is no way that anyone in that studio could not have seen that he was cheating. He was not subtle. He was pretty blatant. And having been on a couple of TV quiz shows, I know that these people do not miss this shit. He defo cheated. Anyway, back to Shoshaloza. Back to something that happened 17 years later. (laughs) So Annalise gets tagged by the first Jorah almost immediately, meaning that she's worth nothing. (laughs) No, she's worth nothing. She's worthless. Yeah, she, she's just a worthless part of this challenge. <laughs> but then she escapes the second Jura, meaning that they don't lose a thousand euros from the pot. And Sam also escapes the second Jura, banking his fifteen hundred euros. Eileen, however, is tagged, meaning that they earn fifteen hundred euros of a possible three thousand for the challenge, four and a half thousand of twelve thousand for the episode, and twelve and a half thousand of a possible twenty-seven thousand for the season so far. They're doing pretty good. Yeah, that'll change. <laughs> and after the challenge, they have a traditional South African braai to celebrate. But of course, party pooper Papa Bear announces that the price of Hans is a double elimination that evening. I also wrote uh, wrote down my notes. Yep, this looks like a pretty authentic braai barbecue. They're really going all in on the South African culture. They really are, because we were there for um, Heritage Day last year as well, and they put on a braai at our hotel, and it was awesome. I think like every accommodation does that at least once a week. So, you know, that's kind of synonymous with South Africa. You go to South Africa, you stay somewhere, they're, they're, like your guests are expecting a braai. Yeah, they um, they really pushed the boat out for uh, for Heritage Day last September. It was awesome. And then depending where you go, you just add BE onto that to uh, give them a bribe. So it's now time for the test. 20 questions on the identity and actions of the mole. The two people who know least will go home, except for the mole who can never go home. Booba says that he doesn't know anymore. Malsena says Davy was suspicious at the Castle of Good Hope, trying to claim Aline's answer. Davy says Aline went the wrong way in the castle, losing them time. Aline says Annalise was suspicious, wanting to go for the high amount in the Shoshaloza challenge. Annalise says it was suspicious that Bertrand didn't know the music from the radio station studio Brussels. Bertrand says that if Hans advances, he's a prime suspect because he has no information. Hans says he's focusing on a couple of people as he has nothing to go on. Robin says that people said they wouldn't help Hans before he joined, but that changed when uh, Passfragen were involved. Yolene says Booba is very young, but could be the mole still. He hasn't done anything necessarily suspicious, except for choosing the Passfragen. Booba says that Robin was stuck in the cage, and it is suspicious that no one noticed he was unlocked. And Gilles says that it's a tough night tonight, as two people who were on the wrong path are going home. And then Hans gets a green screen before Yolene is the first red. Then Eline, Marsena, and Robin get green screens before it is Logan's favourite, Booba, who is next to go home. No! Booba! Why Booba? 
And I also love that Booba got an, an escort from uh, from Jill, but Yolene just got told to sod off and meet them at the car. Yeah, just go ahead. I'm going to chat with Booba or Yolene. Sorry. It's like, no wonder. No wonder we don't remember Yolene. She doesn't even get a proper goodbye. No, she's the only person maybe in Belgian mole history who doesn't get a proper goodbye from Gilles de Costa. It's just like, yeah, you're an afterthought, bye. Yeah, yeah, just go, just run along, scoot along now. My report's that way. Gotta talk to Booba. What's up, Booba? Life is no pony camp. And interestingly, there are no tears this time, so obviously people are less devastated than they were with Jess. They're just they're just happy to be away from Hans. Yeah. Oh, Hans, he's the worst. <laughs> What I noticed that I forgot to point out earlier is that when Hans is back in the game officially, like when he gets the green screen, only one person in the two cars is visibly nervous. You know who that person was? Who? Booba. Booba's the only one who looked like who looked nervous in the car when they were driving away after Hans was declared uh, officially back in the game. Maybe in the same way that Mark's never met a homosexual, maybe um, Booba's never met someone as old as Hans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just so troubled. How do I talk to people that are three times my age? He completely ignores the fact that Annalise is even older, but he's like, Hans, I just don't know how to speak to you. I've never met anyone like you before. Yeah, and those glasses. I've never met a teacher before. <laughs> Annalise is a teacher. That's the joke. <laughs> do I talk about... What do I talk about with them? Do I? No, I can't talk about cell phones. He's not going to know what that is. I mean, despite being a student, I've never met a professor before. What even is a professor? <laughs> or when Hans is taking the quiz, there's like three or four producers and the contestants like, no, you track the mouse that way. No, you don't click the screen, Hans. You don't click the screen. You click the those buttons. Click one of those. Don't forget your reading glasses, Hans. Don't click the button that's like a three-quarter circle with a line sticking out. No! Now we have to boot it up again and redo the quiz! What are you doing, Hans? Hans is even sabotaging the quiz now. You're even doing this slower than Jessica did. I didn't think that was physically possible. <laughs> because Jessica had the added disadvantage of being so nervous that her hands were just shaking when she was trying to select things. That's why she got yeah. nothing right. She tried to press the letter G and she kept pressing H. Her fingers were dancing all around the keyboard. <laughs> now we got to connect to the Wi-Fi on Signal Hill. Do you know how shitty public Wi-Fi is in Cape Town? God damn it, Hans. I don't even know what the password is. <laughs> no, you hit caps lock. That's why you couldn't access the Wi-Fi. It's all lowercase. No, don't type lowercase. The letters are lowercase. Is it? Good hope, all one word. <laughs> good underscore hope. No, don't type good underscore hope. It's good. Hit shift and that key. There you go. Jesus Christ. Is it any of the other bell names? Is it Faith? Good Pope? Did you say good Pope? So in summary, Hans is old. He was actually in the room when Arrivederci Hans was recorded. He was in that studio 50 years ago. Now, the reason that Arrivederci Hans played is because he was actually in the boot of the car as they were driving. <laughs> he was just in the back of the shot all the time. <laughs> he was tied up with a cheetah, a producer who was wearing a cheetah tail. <laughs> I also love how we're talking more about Hans here than the two people who actually went home even though one of them is basically your favorite mole contestant. <laughs> yeah, so Booba, young young teenager, he he almost was in Hans's position, really close to being Hans's position, and maybe he should have maybe he should have thrown that challenge, maybe he would have had a better shot of surviving this double elimination, maybe there was just too much information throwing him off. That's the thing. Booba's elimination is almost entirely Booba's own fault because we don't know how close Hans was to getting eliminated on that first test. If Hans hadn't had the two yokers that he got from Boober and Sam, maybe he would have gone home. It's it's very possible. That's the thing that Boober probably has to bear in mind, is the fact that he was the architect of his own fate here, potentially. If Unless he'd scored worse than Yolene, then none of this really matters. Yeah, and Yolene also went home. Who said that they went all... Didn't one of them say they went all in on somebody on the quiz? Yolene said she went all in on Booba. 
Right, she did say that. I'm like, I thought that's how, yeah, I did, yeah, I do have that in my final note. Jolene had no idea who was the mole and gambled on Booba. Yeah. So if Booba goes home, as if it's just a single elimination, Booba goes home, Jolene probably makes it a lot further into this game. You would think so. That's a, I mean, to have your number one suspect go home second round is a pretty big gift to get. Yeah, because the thing you've also got to bear in mind is that if it was a single elimination and Hans wasn't there, then they still have the advantage of Bertrand being there. And he obviously is going to go home pretty quick. He's going to go home double quick. (laughs) And then with Yolene too, it's kind of funny because I I don't know, I don't think this strategy gets repeated as of the Mexico season, but clearly she didn't learn from Mark in Argentina because this is the very first season after Mark's early elimination where she just says, I went all in on one person just like Mark did on the second quiz. And it's like, well, clearly that's a really dumb strategy because you're guaranteeing that, like, what would it be about an 88% chance that you're going to get zero points on the quiz if you go all in on one person? Except like maybe male, male or female, you might get one point, but you're really just reducing your odds of maybe a maximum score of one or two points if you go all in on one person. And it's an 88% chance of being executed if you do it that way. Especially when there's still 10 10 left and they knew there was going to be eight people left. Like that's, even at eight, it's a lot more understandable. Okay, now you're going to go, it's still way too early to go all in on one person, but it's a bit more understandable then. But when there's still 10 left and nine other suspects, it's like, okay, because you did that, you now have an 88% chance of going home. That's what you're doing. So, next week, I am so looking forward to this next week preview. Next week, the iconic run continues as a forgettable inflatable challenge is then followed by my three favourite words that I ever get to say in a podcast, and believe me, I've said them a lot. Drunk museum heist. Drunk museum heist. Drunk museum heist. Ah! And then the execution is a bit it's a bit of a trick execution it has a really really fun storyline unfortunately you don't know how fun the storyline is until the season is over which makes these next two episodes very rewatchable however i think we're probably going to talk about it in episode four (laughs) yes knowing what we know but yeah the three words that i think i've probably said more than any other thing about the mole is finally next episode. Drunk Museum Heist. Well, how else are you going to celebrate Jill's birthday? Oh god, it's so good. It's the absolute best. I have rewatched episode 3, as I've mentioned a few times, and it is the pinnacle of unintentional comedy for any challenge in any show ever. It's brilliant. And that's all I need to say about that challenge. I've said so much about it over the past six and a half years of podcasts. Ever since we mentioned the mole, I've said so much about Drunk Museum Heist. It was one of the first things that I asked Jill when we spoke to him was, how the hell did you come up with the Drunk Museum Heist and the Ostrich Maze Challenge? And we finally get to talk about it. <laughs> so have we got anything else you want to say about episode two? I think after an hour in, no, I think we are good. Cool. Thank you for listening to our Demol Bells recap. We'll be back next week to continue the hunt for the South African Mole. Don't forget you can contact us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram where we are RTV Warriors, or you can email us at contact at rtvwarriors.com. Logan is on Twitter at LocusWakaki, and I am MJ Harmstone. See you next week. Peace out and just chill till the next of flavoring. And now we get to talk about what the mole did this episode. Yes. So we will now talk about the about what the mole did. So, the two main things that I can remember she did was she talked up her singing abilities to try and get 1500 value, and then she was going to deliberately sing badly and uh, try and get 1500 taken out of the pot, but that backfired because <laughs> Annalise snatched it off her, essentially. And the big thing that she did do that we actually saw in the episode is she delayed her team at the Castle of Good Hope, losing the money by seconds. Waiting until the last minute be like, oh, I got it right. Yeah. You guy, you two screwed up on this. I'm definitely not the mole because I knew the answer and when it was too late. But the interesting thing here is that we get the first indication that Davy is suspecting Aline in this episode. Yeah, that's her friend Annalise too. Yeah, Davy pretty much goes straight ticket on Aline from next week. I seem to remember he goes on her really, really fast. 
but this week is when he starts suspecting her. In the same way that Kathy suspected Jill in episode two, Davy starts suspecting Elaine in episode two. And Annalise, I think, doesn't she suspect uh, Elaine after the Shoshaloza challenge? Well, Annalise's quote this week is that it was suspicious that Bertrand didn't know the music from Studio Brussels. We don't get any indication that she is suspecting Elaine from this week, even though she probably is. But we definitely do from Davy. Just with how aggressive she's like, Elaine, you are not worth 1,500 euros. Yeah, she, did, she didn't play that particularly wonderfully, I'll be honest. 